You are listening to the Atlanta Real Estate Forum radio show, Around Atlanta edition. Showcasing the best of Metro Atlanta, our communities, the attractions, and the special events that make Atlanta great. Welcome to our virtual town square. And now, here are today's hosts. Good morning and welcome back to the Around Atlanta edition. I'm your host, Carol Morgan, joined by my co-host and friend, Todd Schneck. First of all, we'd like to kick things off by thanking New American Funding for being our 2021 show sponsor, our 11th year on air. It's a fantastic year with them as a partner. Well, Todd, I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It plays so much into everything going on in the world today. And it's such an important backbone to kind of Atlanta and what Atlanta is all about and, and, and its service to mankind, if you will. So it's going to be a great conversation. It's going to be great. So with that, I'd like to welcome Jill Savid, the CEO for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights to the show. Welcome, Jill. Take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So yeah, I'm the CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. I actually got involved with the center 10 years ago. I've been in this role two years, but 10 years ago, before there was even a building, I was invited to curate the human rights exhibit, which is the exhibit on our top floor, which talks about human rights around the world. And so it's such a delight to be able to come to Atlanta. I moved here for this role and I love it. It's a fantastic city. And our museum is, as you say, really a backbone because this is the birthplace of civil rights and the hometown of Dr. King. And so we bring all that storytelling to life in our museum. Yeah, no, we're so grateful that you're there doing that important work. So for those that are listening who are not familiar with the center, uh, go a little deeper on kind of the overall mission and purpose of, of what you're trying to do. The center is both a museum, but it's also a cultural rights institution. So within our museum, we have three stories that we tell. One is the story of the U.S. civil rights movement. And we talk about the heroes that people know and the unsung heroes that people may be less familiar with. It's immersive, it's dynamic, it's interactive. It's really moving and transformational, the story that we tell. As I said, there's a human rights gallery that links the movement of the 50s and 60s in the United States to all the nonviolent movements for social change around the world, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to Tiananmen Square to Tahrir Square. And it introduces you to the human rights defenders who have taken up the cause of human dignity in their own societies. And it tells their stories, and it's got a bunch of installations in the Human Rights Gallery to really orient people to what are human rights and how are they enforced and where did they come from? We also have exhibits about the greatest champions of human rights of all time and some of the biggest perpetrators of human rights abuse, many who got away with it. And then finally, our third permanent exhibition is the papers and artifacts of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We're the only place that people who aren't scholars can come and see these papers and King's handwriting and his personal effects. And we have those in a gallery called Voice to the Voiceless, which is really a sacred space. So that's what you can get in our building. And then we have a bunch of programs. We work in the schools and we teach human rights history to in K through 12. We have a human rights training program for law enforcement to teach police about 
civil rights history and police's role in civil rights history, and also to talk about how police are really a a thread, an important thread in keeping democratic societies healthy. We have a diversity, equity, and inclusion training program for workplaces who are looking how to be more inclusive spaces. And we've got a range of other kinds of smaller programs for LGBTQ people on human trafficking. So we run outside of our building a whole bunch of programs in the community. And I would say our biggest mission, our overarching concern, our mantra is to help people tap their own power to protect rights in the world around them. And so we are really big on giving people the tools and techniques to either help them learn more or to become involved. Got a lot going on. I want to circle back if we have time at the end to talk more about this DEI workforce training because that's something that's really hot right now in the new homes industry. But let's talk for a minute about some of the most pressing human rights challenges that we're facing today. I would say the biggest human rights challenge we face right now is the strength of democracy and the health of democracy. Every other right that one could want to have protected is conditioned on living in a healthy democracy. And these are civil and political rights, like the ability to have unfettered access to voting, to free speech and dissent, to the right to associate and come together, to other human rights, which are um, a decent education and a standard of living that allows you to to have um, other kinds of experiences in the world. If you can't eat, you're hungry, if uh, you can't get a job that gets you out of poverty, you can't enjoy basic human dignity, which is what human rights protect. And there are a bunch of problems. Climate change is a problem. Polarization is a problem. There are many, many issues out there. But if you look at what connects them all, if we don't have pluralism and respect for pluralism in our society that allows people to come together and make decisions as a part of self-governance, which is our big experiment here in America, then every other right is threatened. And we won't have a way that we can work together to solve the truly big challenges that we face. And right now in our country, the sanctity of those rights is a question mark for people. And there is such intolerance and such polarization that it has paralyzed decision-making. And so in all of that, that's a glum forecast, but there is a huge opportunity in that this idea of we the people is what this country is founded on. And there is always the opportunity for people to come together and exert pressure on those in power to sway them to a particular viewpoint. And so that's one thing at the center that we are very clear that we support. The civil rights movement was one of the most transformational human rights campaigns in history. And that is because individuals saw injustice, rallied together, and did not stop until they secured a Civil Rights Act in 1964 and a Voting Rights Act in 1965. And there are all kinds of techniques and tactics that they use, and that's the story that we tell. And it is amazingly relevant to today about how civil society can come together and try and make progress in our country. I'm gonna go off script here. Carol knows that I often do this. As we record this, uh, the Ken Burns special on Muhammad Ali has just come out and it's just reminding me of what a crazy decade the 60s were and what a fascinating, tumultuous 
time it was in our history. And, and it kind of is the backbone for my, my question. I don't know how to ask this question. I'm going to throw it out there in hopes that you understand where I'm trying to go with it. I look back upon my education uh, from K through 12, and then not certainly uh, in my collegiate years. I feel like I came out of that education with a real firm grasp of civil rights and the civil rights movement. We obviously read about Martin Luther King and all that that entailed. And, and you mentioned those two key pieces of, of legislation in 64 and 65. I feel like I had a, a good foundation of what that movement was all about and what it was trying to achieve. And then as a student of history, that, that started with the Civil War and, and its aftermath and all that. I had a good feel on that. I don't feel like we ever talked about human rights. I get what they are. I understand it, but it's not embedded into my consciousness like civil rights are because of our educational system. Do you have any comment on that? I mean, I feel like we could do more. I guess where I'm really trying to go with this is where could, what can we do better to embed into people's consciousness this idea of, of human rights? And it's a, such a broad topic. It's hard to kind of get your head around it anyway. Yeah. So, a couple things to know that this is my field, so I'm, I won't get into too much detail, but try and give enough that gives a context. The human rights movement, the official human rights movement, comes out of World War II. So it is in the aftermath of World War II with mass atrocities on, on a you know, global scale in terms of the Holocaust, but also the deprivation of, of people and the rise of fascism that World War II represented that the UN is born and a human rights regime is implemented. In, 19, in 1948, the Universal Declarations of Human Rights is established. That document was a negotiating nightmare in Cold War politics. So there are roughly 30 articles of human rights. In America and in Western countries, democratic countries, capitalist democracies and socialist democracies, we look at civil and political rights. That's voting, that's assembly, that's speech, all the ways you participate in politics. The other half of rights are ones that are insured in largely socialist and communist countries. The right to health care, like nationalized health care, the right to work, the right to education, the right to um, a clean environment. They are called cultural, economic, and social rights. And the communist bloc countries didn't want those civil and political rights. Those were ones that they were wanting people, you didn't get really a right to vote or free speech or any of those things. And the capitalist countries didn't want those socialized rights. It was a feat of negotiation to bound them all up in one document that the world all signed on to and said. But in, in our country, in the United States, the feeling is that you use your civil and political rights to elect people who agree with you on things like health care, education, and the like. So our system does not guarantee those rights. They are ones that you win through politics. And it is a Cold War creation. Is that what you were asking? Yeah. Again, <laughs> I don't know what I was asking. It's just, I just feel like that we as a, as a people could be more aware and more conscious of, of this human rights movement. And, and that's such, a, again, it's such a big topic. It's hard to get your head around, but that, no, I, but I have a better understanding of kind of where this is coming from, from yeah. what you were saying. So thank you for that. Interestingly enough, they are the things we fight about in this country the most. Mm -hmm. or they're among the things, the right to healthcare. Is it a right? 
Do we in our country consider that a basic human right to live a life of dignity? Do you need to have access to health care? We're still arguing about it. It is a guarantee. If you follow the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all the international conventions and treaties, it is a basic human right. You cannot live a life of dignity without it. Should you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to be healthy? That's a it's a legitimate poli sci question that we spend a lot of time in our country arguing about. I happen to think there is a basic human right to it and that it is a government responsibility. As you see in COVID, if not everybody is healthy, everybody is at risk and threatened. Their safety is threatened. If not everyone has a good education, our future workers are not trained. Our future voters are not educated. A good education is, in my view, a government obligation. Now, you can argue about how much money you should spend on that and how many resources should go to it, but and that's what politics is, is the debate about those things. That's very interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to try to put our train back on the track. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the exhibits that are currently at the museum. And I know some of them are probably temporary and some of them are permanent. What do you have going on? Yeah. So our permanent exhibits are the Civil Rights, Human Rights, and King's Papers. We rotate the King Papers that we show in our gallery, and we usually do it around a theme. Right now, it's called beloved community. And they're all, all, all his papers that are related to that. TripAdvisor is something I didn't, before I was the CEO of a history museum, I didn't go on TripAdvisor all that much. I check it obsessively because we routinely get five stars on TripAdvisor. And if people are interested in coming to the center, they should totally go check us out there. We offer a, it, our civil rights gallery was designed by a theater director, and it is like walking through a play. It is, it's got music, it's got um, a simulated experience of what people who did sit-ins at lunch counters experience. It focuses very much on the leadership of young people, because that's who the foot soldiers in the civil rights movement were, young men and women from around the country who came down and registered people to vote and who were hosed by police and had dogs turned on them and were beaten as they tried to integrate rest stops during freedom, the freedom rides. So we tell a really powerful, immersive story. We have a temporary exhibition that's up now through December, and it is about the Rosenwald schools, which were a bunch of schools that were created from a really unique partnership of the man who owned Macy's department store, Julius Rosenwald, and Booker T. Washington, the civil rights leader. And they combined forces during segregation and created all these schools for Black students. And they are in, some of them are in a state of disrepair. And we have an exhibition that a photographer traveled 20,000 miles around the South taking pictures of these Rosenwald schools and a lot of communities' efforts to get them landmark status or to rehabilitate them. And uh, for instance, John Lewis went to a Rosenwald school and Maya Angelou went to a Rosenwald school. So these schools are hugely important in terms of the people who join the human rights movement and artists and professionals and teachers from the Black community who ascended to positions of, of leadership and influence. So they were, they're very important and they're not very well known. And so we have an exhibition, it's called Better Life for Their Children. And it's a temporary exhibition we have right now. I mean, we could talk for hours about Dr. King and, and the role that he played in civil and human rights. But there are so many more leaders in that movement that are fascinating, courageous people that are worthy of, of 
understanding and learning more about. So I'm glad that, that you're shining a light on some of those folks. You know, I, we really can't have a conversation about the center without obviously referencing Dr. King. And, and in the interest of time, because um, <laughs> you and I could talk for hours about it, just highlight what you're doing there at the center to showcase Dr. King and, and how he did give uh, a voice to the voiceless. You know, we have King's papers, we have him speaking throughout, but the point you make is really important. I think it's hard for ordinary people to aspire to be Dr. King because he is a once in a generation voice and talent and brain. And so when you come to the center and you see the people who built Rosenwald schools or Bayard Rustin who organized the March on Washington or Claudette Colvin who didn't give up her seat before Rosa Parks, or Emmett Till and his mom, you learn about people who were ordinary people who managed to do amazing, extraordinary things. And that is the important message that our storytelling gives, is that not everyone is going to be a king. And I think it's off-putting that you can only get involved if you get involved at that level. There are everyday actions that people can take that I think if you take them, there are breadcrumbs that lead you deeper and deeper into becoming an advocate for justice. But but you don't have to go to the nth degree. There are steps you can take in your life every single day that protect and promote the rights of others and yourself. Um, And so we do that both in history and then we do that in our global human rights gallery You meet a nun in Mexico who took on the narco traffickers. You meet an LGBTQ advocate in Russia who took on Putin and anti-gay legislation. You meet a disability rights advocate who made sure that buildings are accessible to everybody. A woman who works with farm workers, women farm workers, and for for immigrant rights. So you can meet all these people. You, You wouldn't know their names but they have done extraordinary things with their lives, lives of real purpose. Ready to take the next step in becoming a homeowner? New American Funding can make it happen. New American Funding is a nationally recognized direct lender for residential home loans. Real estate agents and builders love New American Funding because of their in-house processing, 14 business day close guarantee, and the servicing of their loans. They will work tirelessly to help you achieve home ownership, backed by thousands of five-star reviews from their customers and with convenient branch locations. More and more residents trust them to close their loans on time. Call New American Funding at 678-898-3540 to start your home buying journey today. It's so amazing to me and you look at all the different great work that's been done out there and then you think about how much more we have to do, right? And I I guess I'm going to go off the track now since Todd did it a minute ago because I think this is kind of a good segue to your diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop training you're doing. And again, this is something that we talk a lot about in the home building industry just because there are so few minorities and so few women involved, especially on, you know, senior management tracks or as the owners of their own businesses. So talk a little bit about how that program works and what companies get out of it, why they should do it. Yeah, thank you for that. So we have something called Equal Dignity at Work, and they are conversations. And we have 
seven different modules you can choose from, and they're listed on our website, civilhumanrights.org. And what we do is we host brave conversations, and we get people to talk about maybe biases they have. Everyone has biases. Every last human being, if you're human, you grew up in a certain context, and you've got certain ideas about things, and those are hard to shape. And in fact, I don't know if people can shake them. All you can do is notice them and try not to make your decisions based on them. And so we talk about that, about what unconscious bias is. But I think to the point you raised, Carol, there are fewer women and people of color in senior leadership roles in certain industries. And sometimes that's because those industries aren't necessarily welcoming. It's hard to be the only or the first. And so how do you build up in your industry or at your workplace a way to make sure everyone feels included and everyone feels a sense of belonging? And so that, that's what these conversations do. What they don't do, and which is a, this is a necessary piece as well, is talk about recruiting and pipeline and nurturing talent. And that there are special consultants who do that work. We refer to it. We talk about it. But we don't tell you how, we don't tell companies how to do that. So there are two sides of this. What we also do is connect history to this moment. We are, after all, a history museum. And I think certain industries don't know the role that their industry played in fostering discrimination, segregation, banking, education, healthcare, uh, you know, redlining, that the home building industry, housing is still unbelievably segregated in our country. And it might not be official policy as it once was, but it is certainly custom and practice. And so the conversations that we host try to break down those barriers. Right now in our country, almost every conversation turns into some kind of food fight. Unless you're talking to people who you know agree with you, it's very possible that people, everyone is ready to pull out their fists. And so the conversations that we host are filled with grace. We acknowledge people are going to say things that are stupid and unintentionally hurtful. And we're not going to shame people because the only way you can get people to be more comfortable is to practice those muscles and to say the thing. Instead of saying, what did you mean by that? You could say, oh, what, did you, what exactly did you mean by that? I don't help think me understand. Is, help me understand. Same, same question, but a completely different way to, to state it. And someone says, what did you mean by that? You're immediately, your back is up. You feel defensive. You feel accused. And so there's a tone and a sensibility to these conversations, which is the tone and the sensibility of our whole center, which is that we believe in healthy conversation. We're not always going to agree, but you can disagree agreeably. You can be in violent agreement <laughs> or respectful disagreement. And there's a deep breath that we need to take as a society about where we are. And it, that will only happen. I actually think our DEI conversation program is part of strengthening democracy because workplaces are some of the most integrated places we have today. So it's the place to practice pluralism. It's the place to practice talking to people who are different than you, because socially, in our neighborhoods, and in our schools, we're not seeing as much diversity and pluralism as we should. Um, yeah. And so these conversations are really about practicing the skills of understanding, of grace, 
of learning, of curiosity, of calling people in, not calling them out. And um, the topics are things like, we talk about how a company's values are manifest in its workplace. Everyone has these lofty mission statements. Well, how do you actually put that into practice in your workers' lives? We do one on what is diversity, mm-hmm. equity, and inclusion? Like, what do those words actually mean? Um, we do one on what is systemic racism? Because a lot of people, depending on what news you consume, don't believe that's a thing. Mm. What does that mean exactly? What, what does systemic mean? And so they're um, about an hour long each. Each of the modules is an hour long. We can do them at the center. We can do them at your workplace. We can do them on Zoom. And they've turned out to be very popular. In our first year, we will have trained 900 employees at 20 different companies. Oh, that's impressive. Wow. Yeah. And some companies are having us go through huge swaths of their departments. So a lot of those companies have our customers. Yeah, and it's getting rave reviews. And we would love for people to go on our website. There's a form you can fill out and our team will call you back and say, it starts with a discovery conversation. What's going mm-hmm. on at your workplace? Right. What kinds of things do you want to focus on and talk about? That's, that's really interesting. You know, you touched on something that we are all, um, I think, becoming more and more passionate about in the industry. And, you know, you talk about affordable housing and the need for housing where people want to live. And, you know, it, it's interesting. So much of that and so much of the problem goes back to zoning and codes. And so much of our zoning in this country was created after desegregation. So, you know, whereas now we've got generations that really don't see color, don't see race, don't see sex, don't see, you know, it's become so much more accepting and a a much better place for all of us. You still have these archaic zoning laws. And and that's the biggest thing that I see the builders and developers and the people working so hard in this industry, you know, butting their heads up against and working to get those changed. So that's something that I think we'll still be fighting for the next 10 years, but we're trying to trying to make that happen and make it change. And it is that it's the millennials and the Gen Zs that are, you know, helping to impact that change because they're really trying to help push those envelopes. And, you know, they want to live in these places. So they want to live where they can afford to live too. Well, yeah. I mean, it's often the most liberal cities that are pricing people out, you know, yep. like San Francisco or New York City. Those become impossible to live in and yet they're deep blue. What's going right. on? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That is there's fascinating. A, there's a bigger question about what we believe is the common good that I think we have to grapple with. And what do we believe the American story is? I think people have a very different view of what, what it means to be American. And I think it would be an unbelievably productive conversation for the country to answer that. If you work hard, can you succeed? Is that actually true? Do we welcome strangers? Are we a great melting pot? I don't know. A lot of these questions, I think, are up for grabs. And that's all. And that's all okay. It can be. I mean, what we haven't done in a long, long time is have a civil conversation about these issues. And that's the lesson that I'm learning from this is that uh, we just kind of talk about it and, and be civil and use and, and do those with grace, you know. And, and I, I'm so grateful that you're tying this into history. I'm amused every time I hear someone in the press say, well, this has never happened before. I'm like, well, then you never read a history book before because it's all happened before. And we can learn from that. We are way over time. So I need to wrap this up. I do want to ask you one final issue here, two part question. So there's, probably ways that people can support 
the work of the center. So I want you to walk us through how we can support your work there. But you also said something about it's it's all about these little everyday actions. And you probably have the ability to help us, uh, help educate us on some of these other little things that we can do to take action on the issue of civil and human rights uh, and coach us on some things to think about and all that. So if you could share some info about how we can we can serve the actual center and then what are some ways that you can provide some tips on some everyday actions we can take to move these issues forward? So the first thing you can do, it's a win-win, visit us, buy a ticket. That helps us financially when you come to visit us. We're COVID safe. You have to sign up for a ticket online. We're only open four days a week because it's expensive when people are largely not coming. So come visit us and you can buy your ticket on our website. There's also a way to support our work financially. And there's a donate button on that website and you can give. Attend our programs online. Twice a month, we put together an online program on a topic of interest of civil and human rights. And you can meet people working on that issue and listen in and ask questions. And it's everything from what does defund the police actually mean to what is long COVID and how does it affect people? So we take up a range of issues. So those are all quick steps that support us by attending our center and attending our programs. And in terms of every day of steps people can take, if you're on social media, use it as a force for good. Don't be, don't be a jerk. You know, try and, and think about what you say as being educational, illuminating from your personal experience, and think about being solution-oriented rather than problem-causing. That, that's the first thing. I also carry a um, a biodegradable bag around me and I pick up garbage. Any trash I see, this is our community together. There are little things that you could do that are just good citizen things. So, I mean, those are just two mm-hmm. easy ones. And then if you wanted to go a little deeper, what do you care about? What are you interested in? Who's working on it? The only way to do something is to actually do it. People say, how do I get started on human rights? Just start. There are other people who are interested in this issue. Go to their website. They'll have a meeting. Sign up for their mailing list. Most important, meet other people who care about the same thing. You're not going to do it by yourself. If our stories tell you anything in the museum is that it's about people coming together to make change. So go meet other people who care about that thing you care about. And I promise you, you will soon be involved in actual work on that issue. Yeah, we are not alone, that is for sure. Jill Sabat, the CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Jill, it was a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for carving out some time to join us. And uh, uh, we're grateful for you and your team and the important work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. All right. Well, that wraps uh, this week's Around Atlanta edition. On behalf of our show sponsor, New American Funding, my co-host, Carol Morgan, I am Todd Schnick. That is all the time that we have for today. Thank you for tuning in and listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you again right here next week. We'll see you then. Atlanta Real Estate Forum Radio is sponsored by New American Funding and made possible by Denim Marketing, the publisher of Atlanta Real Estate Forum, Atlanta's favorite source for real estate and home building news. Denim Marketing is a comfortable fit, like your favorite pair of jeans. Denim Marketing tailors marketing strategies to meet your specific needs and niche. Try them on for size. They will work to create a perfect fit for your company's marketing program. 
Call them at 770-383-3360 or send an email to info at denimmarketing.com. For more information on Atlanta Real Estate Forum Radio or to inquire about being a guest, contact info at atlantarealestateforum.com. Check out the radio show by visiting atlantarealestateforum.com or by listening to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed today's broadcast, we'd sure appreciate a rating and review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Atlanta Real Estate Forum Radio.